Good morning. We are in 1 Timothy 1 through, or 5, 1 through 8 today, so if you want to turn in your Bibles there, once you've got it, then I will ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy 5, 1 through 8, and these are the words of God. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And you can be seated. So as we've been working through 1 Timothy in this series, we've seen many big picture themes, right? We've seen a bit about false teaching. We've seen about the pure message of Jesus' gospel. We've read about prayer. We've seen about church government. We've come across a number of little creeds and confessions regarding the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and what that means in history. Uh, And then most recently, last week, we looked at Scripture itself and its central role in the shaping of a church uh, and how we are to read Scripture and then apply it uh, and also take a doctrinal approach to it. So these are all big, kind of big picture themes. And now we're looking at something very practical, very hands-on. Okay? And it might seem like in light of all these big, you know, weighty, heady topics, it would seem odd then that we find so much emphasis on something which might seem at first glance like a very small slice of church life. Something so practical is given so much space in this book. But it shows God's priorities. It really does. Okay? Um, so there's two things that might be behind it. If we think that this is a lot of emphasis on something very narrow in scope or, or overly practical, uh, we might be tempted into thinking that for two different reasons. And, and one is, and we talked about this a little bit last week, one is that as the church kind of gravitates towards youth culture and prioritizing everything that's new and everything that's young, we often find ourselves with youth culture in the church rather than a more biblical model of intergenerational church culture. And so many young people don't have the privilege of being around widows or seeing widows or worshiping with widows. And so it might seem out of touch, you know, out of, out of sight, out of mind. This doesn't seem like such a relevant issue. But we may also fail to see the importance of vulnerable people like the widow because we miss the big story of Scripture. We're not seeing God's heart through the whole Scriptures. And so seeing the importance of this is helpful in our own time because I think... Uh, even if we're not around elderly widows, I think this issue is going to continue to be important. And as families break up, we may even see that this becomes more important, how we care for those who are bereft, for those who are alone. All through the Bible, and starting in many of the Old Testament stories and carrying through to the New Testament, including a passage like today, you can clearly see that God has a heart for the orphan and for the widow. One of the favorite Bible verses when Christians are polled in North America uh, as to what their favorite Bible verses are, one that consistently makes the top five, 
is that God cares for those who care for themselves. God helps those who help themselves. What's the problem with that being one of the top five Bible verses among North American evangelicals is it doesn't exist. But somehow it's entered into our mindset that this is a scriptural teaching, and it is not. The stories about the widows or barren women or those who are left destitute like orphans uh, reminds us of the biblical gospel, which is quite the opposite of God helps those who help themselves, and that is this. God helps those who cannot help themselves. God helps the helpless, and that's all of us in one sense. The orphan and the widow are a real picture of all of us when we strip away all our layers of self-sufficiency. We are all at the mercy of God's kindness and provision. And you see some of these stories that really strip it all away and help us to see who we are. Uh, if, if you think of the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 9, there's this story of a, a little boy, so this is Jonathan's son, and his nurse is escaping with him and drops him. And he's crippled in both his feet for the rest of his life. And then you fast forward several years, and after David has successfully taken the, the throne from Saul, he asks himself, you know, is there anyone left from Saul's household that I can show kindness to him? Right? What would any other king do in that situation? Read of any story of kind of royal intrigue. What do you do? If you take the throne from one family, you make sure you kill and destroy absolutely everybody who's left in that other family so that there's no rightful contender to your throne. It's now yours. But what does David do? He says, is there anyone left from Saul's house that I can show kindness to him? And then his advisor tells him, well, there's this one boy, but he's crippled in both his feet, Mephibosheth, David's son, or uh, Jonathan's son. And David invites him into the kingdom, knowing that Mephibosheth provides absolutely no value to him. He's crippled. He provides nothing. David doesn't need him. He's not even useful, but he wants him in his family. He wants him in his kingdom just to show kindness to his friend Jonathan. Okay? And isn't that a picture of the gospel? What do we contribute to God's kingdom? Really nothing. God does not need anyone here. He does not need anyone on this planet. He's God. But what does he do? Not because of what we bring, but to show kindness to his son, Jesus Christ. He grafts in all those, he adopts in all those who are grafted into Christ Jesus. Mephibosheth is a story of all of us, and it's a story of the orphan and of the widow. How we care for the vulnerable is a test of what we believe about the gospel and how we see the church. David's care for Mephibosheth is a clear type or role play of the gospel, and God's care for the orphan and the widow is exactly the same thing. Uh, I've had the privilege in my own life of uh, spending lots of time, and even for a period living with my uh, one set of grandparents, who were some of the most generous people I know. And I think part of what shaped my grandfather's generosity in particular was that his mom was a widow. His mom... Uh, became a widow when my grandpa was nine months old. She lost her husband and one of her daughters on the same night when typhoid fever was going through Landmark. And so I've heard many stories about his mom. Here's a widow lady with a farm, nine children, one of which is still practically a newborn, and it's her job to hold this all together. And I've heard many stories, you know, selling off bits of the farm to make it work, and horses getting so crazy from the flies that they'd run into the yard at full speed out of control, tangled up in the bush, and then someone has to go with a knife and cut all the leather traces off. Her oldest children trying to figure out how much seed dad put in the ground, and then figuring out next how to calibrate the planter, and then measuring off an acre to see if they put the right amount in. It was all trial and error, and everything was difficult.
There was one story where she had finally saved up enough money to pay her taxes, and not knowing how to deal with finances, she gave $300, which would have been quite a sum back then, to one of her family members. And when it came time to pay the tax, that money was all gone. So her 12-year-old boy went to go road building so that he could pay for the property taxes so they could stay on the farm. That is the life of a widow. That's one that's close in my family. I never met my great-grandma. She was gone before I showed up, but my grandpa assures me that me and her would have loved each other. And she had a hard life. And some of you here know the stories. That's the story of a widow. How many times do you think a helpless woman like that went to bed trying to hold her family together, trying to hold her farm together, trying to hold her faith together maybe at times? How many times do you think her pillow got wet with tears, knowing that there is no one to call on but God? In the absence of her husband, even her other men in her life were treating her poorly. And that is the plight of many widows. Many of you will have your own family stories along those lines. This topic is important enough to God that he gives a detailed and practical instructions for all of us how to deal with these kinds of situations. And the instruction for how to care for widows is part of the larger framework of chapter 5, which is how to treat all kinds of different people in the church, but it highlights widows in particular. And so if we read in verses 1 and 2, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And so, having seen last week that Timothy is a young man who is charged with taking a big job of a mature man, it will strike us how difficult it would have been for him to correct a man maybe double his age. Think of if you're a 30-something and you're in the job of correcting a 70-something. That's an awkward situation, right? So Timothy's age really was a handicap in many ways. But Paul's instruction in chapter 4, verse 12, is that Timothy develop the kind of character that's worthy of respect so that it helps to make these instructions credible when he does need to correct uh, an older man. He needs to conduct himself with an air of dignity and honor so that his words actually have some weight. And so one of the things that we can learn from this uh, is that we need to give weight to our words with our conduct, with our lifestyle, and also to treat our words with a certain level of sensitivity and appropriateness. Timothy says he should not rebuke an older man, but to encourage him. And this principle we find earlier in Proverbs 15.1, and we all know this proverb well, is that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And here's a real opportunity to do this. If you're going to go correct a man who's 40 years older than you, don't come down on him like a ton of bricks. Talk gently to him. Show some respect. And the word translated encourage here is the word parakalai, which literally would mean to come alongside of, or to help, or to build up, or to urge. And we see that prefix para in many of our English words, right? Uh, Parallel lines, that means two lines that are running alongside each other. A parable, which Jesus uses as a story or a comparison that runs alongside an actual real-life thing. That's what parable means. A paralegal would be someone who works alongside a lawyer in a law office. A parasite is an organism that lives on the host of another animal. So this prefix para just means to come alongside, to help strengthen, to help build. And in fact, the Holy Spirit at some places is called the paraclete, right? Because he is our encourager. He's, he's walking alongside us and strengthening us and encouraging us. So we see here that any kind of exhortation or discipline that's in the church is to be done as softly as possible. And this is a good general rule for anything in the church 
is that the minimum amount of force is always to be used, and we only increase pressure as the situation uh, dictates it. And the need to be gentle is really highlighted in Timothy's case, again, because of his young age. But also think of your own experience, whether it's in a family relationship or whether it's in a work environment. We always do better for people who encourage us, right? You can almost work yourself to death for someone who's praising you. Yet the taskmaster who comes down hard and always has a negative, critical thing to say, eventually you just give up trying to please that person, right? The person that you want to perform for is the one who can speak a gentle and encouraging word to you, even when he thinks you're wrong. And so there's, again, is, is a principle we can glean from here. The other classes of people here in verses 1 and 2 include younger men, older women, and younger women, and these are all spoken of in family terms. So these aren't units in an army to be barked at, nor are they just numbers in a congregation to be put in a lineup, but these are actual living, breathing human beings who are bearing the image of God, and they are to be treated with respect and the dignity that we would treat a family member with. And in fact, the church is a family. The church is the family of God. And each of us was estranged from God and far away, serving ourselves, fulfilling our own evil desires until God got a hold of us. Until God got a hold of us. And adopted us into his family, just like David adopted Mephibosheth into his own family. So the family language makes sense. It's fitting. And so it would make sense that a pastor like Timothy would help build up a family-like culture in the church by showing respect to the older people as though they are his parents and to younger people as though they are his siblings. And then it says at the end here to do this in all purity. And this is probably most especially connected to the instructions on the younger women. Right? And it doesn't take much imagination for many of us to understand why there would be particular sensitivities about a young pastor like Timothy uh, mentoring or, or dealing close up with younger women. The temptation to impurity would certainly have been there. And so Paul is reminding him to do this in all purity. Treat her like a sister, not like an object. And in our own time, people put many safeguards in place to honor this principle, and I think many of these are wise, right? Such as a, an office window, or many of us have heard about the Billy Graham rule, right? It's a, it's a bad idea for a young man to go for lunch with a young woman, just the two of them, for example, right? Have some accountability. Have something in place there uh, that will hold you accountable so that, one, you avoid impurity and even the appearance of impurity, in the parallel passage in Titus 2, 1 through 8, there's special instructions on how the older women are to instruct the younger women. And of course, put together with this passage, we see that this doesn't mean that a, a man or a pastor can't have any dealings with young women. That's not at all what it says. But rather, he's to treat her like a sister and then give her the honor and the dignity and the purity that is owed to her as an image bearer of God. But it also means that the older women are uniquely designed to mentor younger women in a way that a pastor can't, being a man... There's, there's only so much he can relate to uh, the experience of a younger woman, and so it makes sense that the older women are instructed to do something that a pastor as a man cannot do. And then it moves on in verse 3, and it says, Honor those widows who are truly widows. So just as there's instructions on treating older men with respect in verse 1, there's now an honor which is directly targeted towards a woman, towards a widow. And there would be application here for widowers as well, for men who are widowed, but it's talking about widows in the feminine conventional sense. And the gender difference that God has intentionally designed into all creation, it is actually fitting that we would look at, uh, at females, at women, with a special amount of dignity and respect and honor. 
In chapters 2, 8 to 14, we examine the importance of male and female in the church, and it's fitting that the church's priority of care, protection, provision, and honor would in fact be given to women. The rest of the passage here fleshes out the qualifications for how the church is to do this. And then there's the language of truly widows. And this has to do with discerning which widows should be directly supported in the church or by the church in terms of a financial need. right? Because some of them have other family. Some of them have other safety nets or other safeguards. And some, all they have is their church. And so the church is to think through who is in the best place to support this lady. And the word translated widow here is charis which actually includes a widow, but it certainly includes how, what we think of a widow as a woman who has lost her husband through death. But really, it, 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 the indication of the word is anything where there's been a significant loss. It, it, it gives the sense of being bereaved or being bereft of something or having something taken away. So this could be a woman also who has lost her children. Uh, this could be a woman who has lost her husband through abandonment or through divorce. Okay? It includes any uh, a runaway dad, whatever, you, you name it. This is a woman who is bereft. This is a woman who has lost something of deep significance close to her in her family. So it, it certainly includes what we think of as a widow, but in, the application here is, is wider than just beyond that as well. And then verse 4, it says, But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn how to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. And we've discussed this before when we've looked at these different layers of government, and this showed up a couple times in 1 Timothy, this concept of sphere sovereignty, which is that God has just designed different spheres of authority to do different things, right? So a family is a government. We think of civil government, and that is certainly one. There's church government, there's educational government, there's business government. There's all kinds of circles of government that God has placed into creation, Uh, And when we hear the word government, we just think of the state, uh, and it includes that. But there's so many other governments and spheres of authority that God has put all over creation. And there's another uh, sense in classical Christian thinking that is directly brought out in a text like this. Uh, And this is the concept that's called, if you want to write this down here, it's called subsidiarity. It's a big word, but we'll flesh it out here because it's pretty plain in the text. And that's this principle. The government that is closest, smallest, and most personal to you is always the best place to deal with something, okay? So the first best place to deal with something is in your marriage, and then the wider family, and then the church, and then the community, and you only work out as you need to. It's kind of like the system of church government. You only use more force if necessary. The concept of subsidiarity is just a respect for God's creational design, the closest, most personal, local branch of authority is always the preferable place to deal with something. Okay? So don't run to the church if you can figure something out between husband and wife. Okay? Don't call the cops on your teenager if you can deal with it in the family. Okay? Don't get the federal government involved in something that's a land dispute between you and your neighbor that maybe you or maybe the municipality could work out. Right? So I, I think this principle, it seems obvious once you flesh it out, but it's something we've forgotten about. Okay? So just keep this in mind, smallest, closest, most personal is always best, and we only move further away as we absolutely need to. But the further away you move, beware, the less personal it is, the less compassionate it is, the the less equipped uh, that circle of authority is to deal with your unique situation. Because the further away you get, you just become a number. Your neighbor knows you. Okay, The federal government, you are just citizen, pick a number, right? 
And here we see again that the family, in this case, is the first, most basic, most personal, most effective, most efficient, and most important social unit that God has woven into creation. It's right there at the beginning, a husband and his wife. There's government right from the very beginning. But in this design, at creation and from the start, the woman was not designed to be her own protector and provider and so forth, right? And we see that all the time now, right? Raise your girls to be warriors. Raise your girls to be their own knight. Is that biblical? Not at all. Nope. Living in a fallen world may require that women are sometimes in a war-type situation and they have to fend for themselves, but this is not the design of God. This is not the design of God. Woman was not built for that. Man was. So while Paul has also had an encouraging word for those, in sing- uh, those who are single in terms of their ability to minister and serve the church in a way that married people can't, the normal pattern is that people will be married. Most women will be married at some point. And it's not a deficiency if you're not. God may providentially call people to singleness. But we're looking at the normal pattern here. And in that normal pattern from creation on, it is the husband's job to see to it that his wife is cherished, that she is loved, that she is protected, and that she is provided for. He is a brick wall that stands between her and the fallen world to protect her. That's your job. And young men, if you're thinking about marriage, that's going to be your job. Your job is to insulate your family, to protect your family from what is outside. It's your job. So when a woman loses her husband, and you see this all through the scriptures, God's normal way of caring for her and protecting her is gone. And this passage addresses how to help this dear lady out. And in the case of the personal care for a widow, the family, of course, is best equipped. We just saw that here. But this won't be feasible in all cases. Maybe the woman has no children. Maybe they've all moved away. Maybe they're all unbelievers and they don't want to waste their time with mom. It could be for a variety of reasons. If the family is there, of course that's best. If not, then we have instructions for the church to step in and fill that need. And if children and grandchildren are on the picture, it says here, uh, there can be a double blessing, right? If, if, if the family can take care of mom or grandma, they come together more strongly after a significant loss in the family. And the children and the grandchildren receive the blessing of returning the love and the care that this older generation provided for them. Whether it's mom, whether it's grandma, whether it's great-grandma, you are returning, you're paying it back in one sense. And the family dynamic can play in a very special way because it provides many opportunities to grieve together as a family, to relive the memories that you made as a family, and so forth. And the younger ones have an opportunity to reflect now that they're put into a, into a spot where they have to give care. Maybe it's an opportunity to reflect on how much love and care mom or grandma put into you. How many diapers did mom change when you were little? How many times did grandma watch you even though she was tired so mom could go shopping? And no doubt there are times where this requires sacrifice and dedication, just as it did when mom was raising her little kids or helping with the grandkids, but there can also be much joy in doing these things well. And so whatever the level of sacrifice and joy, the arrangement of a family taking care of each other, and especially of children and grandchildren honoring their widowed mother, is pleasing to the Lord. And you see this in the cases of bereft women all through the Old Testament. Think of heartbroken women, maybe not through widowhood, but through barrenness, through being unable to have children. Women like Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Hannah or Samson's mother. 
These were all women who were heartbroken and who were grieving their inability to have a family. And then we also see how God is a caretaker of widowed women like Tamar or Naomi or Ruth, right? There's a whole family of widows that God is caring for. And these family members are showing the heart of God when they care for their widowed mothers, grandmothers, you name it. And never do you actually see this illustrated in a more intimate, in a more personal, and in a more tender way than when Christ is dying on the cross, Christ completes his ministry. He is there suffering, bearing the sins of everyone who would believe on him, past, present, and future. He's bearing the wrath of God. And then it says in John 19, verse 25 and on, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So think of the the intense agony, both physical and spiritually, that Christ is going through. And what's reflected about him is the care of his widowed mother. Joseph has been gone for many years. He's out of the picture for many years already. Christ is dying on the cross, and he shows his heart by personally ministering to a thief and to a widow. That shows the heart of God, even despite the anguish that he's going through. In verses 5 and 6, as we move on, it says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so just as Christ is committed to caring for the widow as he is suffering and dying on the cross, so a widow who is on her own sees clearly and directly her dependence on God in a way that many of us aren't able to understand. Many of us are used to all the normal ways that God takes care of us, and we start to think that that's just normal or or God's not in that. The widow has no such luxury. She sees directly she is depending on God. But really, all of us are dependent on God. Even when he provides through us through normal means, it's still God in and through and under those means. But when these things are taken away, we see a direct connection between the widow and her God. And it's, it's much more directed and plain to see how God is going to be there to answer her prayers. Right? Uh, it's even in the last song that we sang. Right? Who have I on heaven and earth but thee? Who else is there? My husband is gone. My children are gone. God, I am at your mercy. And think of how many widows in your life you think must have laid there at night crying that, wondering how this would work. Whom have I on earth or heaven but thee? The position of being alone and exposed will send many women down one of these two directions that we see described here. The first picture we see is that of a godly saint, setting her hope on God and trusting in him to supply her needs both day and night. And there's a certain sweetness and a dignity and a feminine beauty in the woman who is doing this. But this is also contrasted by a woman of a different disposition. The ungodly woman is going to mask her pain or or perhaps try to crowd it out with busyness, uh, with distractions, with self-indulgence, looking to fill something up that she will not be satisfied with. And that just sends her down a treadmill of self-indulgence, which will never satisfy which will never satisfy, causing more self-indulgence, and you see that cycle going as well. So you see these women, and this is really all of us, when difficulty comes, we're going to go one of two directions. 
right? We will either draw nearer to God or we will get deeper into ourselves. And so here's a picture of two women handling their difficulty and their grief in two very different ways. The self-indulgent woman, it says, is spiritually dead and has added grief upon grief by cutting herself off from Christ and his church after losing her family. But both women have experienced a deep hurt. The disposition of their heart is what's the difference here. One goes deeper into the care and compassion of God, and the other moves to the never-ending treadmill of selfishness, which will not and cannot satisfy. Then in verse 8, it says, Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch. Ouch. That's hard language, isn't it? Could you imagine any evangelical talking this way to another evangelical today? I don't think it would pass, right? But this is the way the Bible talks to us. This is hard language. Keeping with the pattern we've already gone over many times in this book, there's another instruction here for Timothy to command these things. And what's he to command? Well, and I think it's twofold. One, he's commanding the widows of the church to follow the pattern of the godly widow, to trust in the Lord, to care for her, whether that happens through her children, whether that happens through the church or some kind of combination of that. He's commanding them to follow the example of the godly widow. But he's also commanding the church to take care of these dear ladies so that they don't go unnoticed and unhonored and fall between the cracks. The family members in the church have received an exhortation to be sure to take care of their mothers and grandmothers. And the church as a whole has been instructed to take direct responsibility for those widows who don't have family to care for them. And in both cases, a clear pattern is being instructed. Because God has compassion on the widow, so should we. It's a simple principle. Whether the lady is our mother, our grandmother, or a lady in the church who is of no physical relation, her welfare becomes our concern. She is setting an example of godliness as she trusts God to take care of her in a different manner than she was used to, and we need to honor that by actually taking care of her. And verse 8 does have some very hard words, especially for the men here as heads of households. And the positive side of this teaching is that men are to model the father in his compassion and protection for the family and for the needy and for the brokenhearted all around us. And we're to model Christ who meets the needs of his church. Right? This is the positive instruction. And Timothy has been instructed to do that after Paul. And so this applies to all of us men, especially those of us who are heads of households, is to follow Christ in the way he cares for his church. And this positive teaching can also be summed up in James 1, verse 27, which says that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, and we all know the rest, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That to God is pure religion. And when men do this, they are telling the truth about God. When men take responsibility and care and offer protection To those around them, they are telling the truth about who Jesus Christ is. But the negative side of this teaching describes what's happening when we neglect our calling. If someone is not providing for his relatives, with a special emphasis here on those who are closest to him and his household, it says he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Even unbelievers tend to just by instinct, know, and this is from the image of God, they tend to take care of those around them. They know that by nature. 
They know that by instinct because they're made in the image of God. So they know they have to do that. We sometimes talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. Well, what is that? Those are $5 words. Well, what does that mean? A sin of omission is just simply omitting something, failing to do something that you know is right. Okay? So if you see someone stranded by the side of the road and you're in a position to help them and you keep driving by, that is a sin of omission. Okay? You haven't actively hurt that person, but you have failed to do good in a situation that you could have done good. That is a sin of omission. What's a sin of commission? Well, it's a sin you commit. You do it. You hurt somebody directly. Okay? You're, you're directly disobeying a command from the Lord in a sin of commission. And so for a Christian to deny the important calling on their life to help others around them, not only are they failing to do good, the sin of omission, but they are directly violating a scriptural command to care for those around them, a sin of commission. We are doubly guilty. And why is it worse for a Christian man? Why does it say he's worse than an unbeliever? Well, because the unbeliever isn't professing Christ. A believer is. So a believer is wearing the name of Christ. And when a believing man fails in this task, he is lying about who Christ is. There's the additional sin on top of everything else of blasphemy. You are lying about who God is. You are lying about who Christ is. You are saying Christ doesn't care. Christ doesn't have time. Christ runs away from the church. Christ runs from trouble. And that's a lie. And so this is why there is hard words for heads of households who are running away from responsibility. Why is it worse than an unbeliever? Because you are lying about Christ in a way that they are not. That's why this language is as hard as it is. And it is making him worse than an unbeliever when he escapes that responsibility. It's a serious task. And all of us, men, young or old, need to be especially aware of this and to be especially aware of the needs around us. Use your strength for good. So a text like this is pretty practical. It's pretty easy to apply. Surely we all have people in our families or in our churches who could be blessed by you plugging into their life. Perhaps it's a grandmother in a nursing home who's lonely and would love to see her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren And then one day, that opportunity is gone, and it won't come back. Perhaps it's your own aging mother who needs a hand with something at home because she's barely able to still live on her own, and she'd love to see you. And we can make further application based on the principles here as well. Are we looking out for the needs of each other in this church as we get ill, or someone's out of work? Do we have eyes to see those things? If you know some needs in the church, just go ahead, plug in, get involved, get your hands dirty. After all, what is the church other than people? If you see the need, do it. That is the church doing it, because you're part of the church. Do it. What is the church other than people? And it doesn't necessarily have to go through the elders and deacons, although it certainly can. And even the office of deacon, how did that even come about? Well, that's because the apostles were supposed to stay committed to teaching, because that's important. But the neglect of the widows was so important to the church that they actually set off an office just for that job, just to take care of people who need care. This is how important it is to God. There's a whole church office surrounding this kind of ministry. And if the need is able or is larger than what you're able to handle on your own, that's when you do involve the wider church. That's when you do involve the elders and the deacons or other men or ladies in the church who are in a position where they can help the afflicted or the brokenhearted. But for us men especially, we need to be reminded of our calling to reflect the glory of the Father 
by taking responsibility of protecting, providing, and cherishing and honoring those around us, especially those who are disadvantaged and afflicted and helpless. And with that, let's close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for clear and practical instructions. Lord, the brokenhearted, the orphan, the widow are dear to your heart. And we don't have to look very far into your word to see how important this is. Lord, I pray for each person here this morning, whether, uh, whether brokenhearted or whether right now in a season of strength. Lord, I pray that you would give us tender hearts to see your compassion for those who are disadvantaged, for those who have been afflicted. Lord, and I pray that each one here who has strength would use it to benefit and to bless and to honor those around us. Lord, and that you would use people, real-life people, to bind up and to care for the needs of others, whether that is a widow, whether that is a lady who has been abandoned, someone who's out of work. Lord, however that looks in our own situations, give us eyes to see these things. Give us hands that are willing to help to plug in that we would use your blessings in our lives for good and to bless those around us. Lord, help us to see you. I pray also that you would minister to us now as we prepare to have lunch together. I pray that the visiting would also help to build community, build relationships, and build care. Thank you for your kindness to us. We commit this all into your strong and capable and caring hands. Amen. Just a reminder for potluck, everyone, once they're ready, can start moving chairs and tables into place. And young men, make sure that the ladies aren't working until your hands are all full. So, the charge is this. We have been reminded that the church is a family where we are to relate to one another as fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. And just like in our own families, honor is shown to different people in unique ways. God's heart for the widow is a picture that takes us more deeply into the way his gospel provides every need for all of us who are unable to help ourselves. Our mothers and grandmothers have been nurturing us since conception, and being able to care for them later in life should be seen as a tremendous blessing and a reminder of the kindness that God has given us in the form of a mother's love. We were created by God to bear his image, and few things bear his image more clearly than the strong and the powerful using their strength to protect, provide for, and show compassion to the brokenhearted and the afflicted. Actively look for those situations in which you can reflect the, the Father's care for the widow. And then receive the benediction from Psalm 146. It says this, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When this breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is the Lord of God, the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked will to, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. And go in peace.